Well, good evening, and I bring you greetings from your sister church in Cobb County from the Midway Presbyterian Church, Powder Springs, and it's good to be back with you all. We've been with you from time to time, and this sanctuary and worshiping with you has, has many good memories for my wife Anne <clears throat> and I, and we're glad to be with you. I congratulate you on making it to 20 years almost. Uh, that's, that's not a small achievement, and uh, I had the privilege of seeing your sanctuary when it was just being shelled in. And uh, some of you were here uh, then, and we thank God for how he's blessed your church and the wonderful work. We're so very thankful for your pastor and his family and uh, for so many friends we have here. Great to hear your church continue to pray that the Lord would protect you from the fowler snare. And that, uh, <clears throat> that needs to be uh, prayed regularly and also, your pastor said I would be preaching the word shortly. I, I think he meant in a, in, in a few minutes, uh, but I, I won't. I won't go too long tonight. I'm going to preach to you from the Gospel of Mark. We've just begun a series in our church from uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's uh, as you may know, it's it's a very fast-paced gospel. Uh, it's one of the earliest gospels, uh, likely written in the late 50s A.D. Uh, most people find two anonymous figures uh, in this gospel uh, toward the end and think that that is likely young Mark. Uh, one time in which uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane he ran out from under his uh, outer robe as he was threatened with arrest. And as you know, a, a little bit of your New Testament history, Mark uh, went with Paul on an early missionary journey and then showed himself unreliable uh, Paul refused to take him with him a second time, and he went with his cousin Barnabas. And then much later in the New Testament history, in the book of Colossians and also in the pastoral epistles, we see uh, that after some 30 years had elapsed, uh, the apostle Paul was reunited with young Mark, and he was restored uh, to the ministry. And so we we have the report of a, a very... Uh, young man uh, at the time. It's a, it's a vivid gospel. It is filled with action. As I told our congregation, if this were a Hollywood production, this would be the fast and furious version uh, of the gospel. There wouldn't be <clears throat> a whole lot of character development. This is action. Mark is fond of the word immediately, uh, and he, he speaks often in the present tense, and we'll see a couple of verses combined together. But wherever we, wherever we place our feet in the stream of this gospel, Wherever you dip your toes in this, you find yourself discovering this magnificent divine Jesus Christ, the one who attracted people to himself, the one who promised to change lives and give eternal life, and it is that Christ that Mark is under a burden to present, and it's good news that he presents to us. This book opens in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, uh, in a verse before I read our verses for tonight, talking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and at the end in Mark chapter 16, uh, the book concludes talking about the, the gospel being preached uh, into the whole world. And in the verses just prior to this section that I'm about to read to you, the Father has commended Jesus. Jesus has come under the scene, he has been baptized, heavens open up, and an audible voice speaks 
and says, This is my son whom I love. Hear him. And Jesus then takes center stage. We'll see in the verse uh, that, that I'll read for you in just a second, in verse 14, uh, that this is after John has been in prison. So if you will, look in, in your Bibles with me in John chapter, uh, Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. This is the Word of God. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and able to discern, able to divide asunder bones and marrows and joints, and to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. Let's pray that God will now bless it. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you and we ask tonight that you will turn our hearts away from ourselves, away from this world, away from things which may be good in themselves, but things which distract. And we pray that we would see clearly the portrait that you've given us of good news announcing the arrival of the King. And may we know you as our King. We pray that your word would come alive this night in Jesus' name. Amen. The baptizer is imprisoned. Jesus comes on center stage, and the king and the kingdom is at hand, both in word and in deed. And there are three things I want you all to know from these verses tonight. First, I want you to know what the kingdom is and how it's at hand. Secondly, I want us all to know how we respond to the kingdom of God, which is to repent and believe. And thirdly, I want us to see how lives are changed when the king calls us. Remember, Mark's emphasis is on action. Approximately a year has transpired between what I've read and the previous section of verses where Jesus was baptized. There's not much that's given. There's very little editorializing. There aren't opinion pieces that fill in the blanks of these months in between. But Jesus builds on John's ministry. Their ministries, in fact, are not that different. Mark simply tells us after John was put in prison. And this, that there's very little detail given to us by Mark. Why is that? It's because Mark is Jesus-focused and he isn't willing to be distracted even to talk about this great leader, John the Baptizer. The gospel, though, he wants you to know does not stop with a halting of one particular leader. The gospel does not depend on man. This church does not depend on man. It's been said often that God buries His workmen, but He builds His church. The Lord will build His church. Let a tyrant imprison John and kill him and cut his head off 
But the kingdom of God will march forward. We can trust in that. We're told also by Mark that this occurs out in the outback in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, not in the center of the culture, but in in the, the outback districts. And there Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God. You must know, in, in short, the gospel of God is an announcement of the good news. The gospel of God, and you're a very well-taught church, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new, but the gospel of God is that breaking chiron that scrolls across the screens of our lives that tells us, stop, listen, something very important has happened, and the good news, the announcement is that Jesus Christ has come and He is the King who has awaited for centuries. And when Jesus comes, you'll notice, if you go back just the least bit, that when Jesus begins His ministry of preaching, His preaching is very similar to the preaching of John the Baptizer. They're not on different pages. This is not the preaching and theology of John or the theology of Jesus. They were coming from the same playbook. And Jesus also picks up exactly where John left off, saying, repent and believe. John's baptism was one of repentance. It called for a change of mind. It called for a reversal of direction of the path of our life. And when we repent, John taught, we come and we leave behind those sins and we are forgiven. And you'll also notice that John was very popular. It says all of Israel went out to him. And when Jesus began to speak, all of Israel goes out to hear him as well. There's a reason, you'll see this later in John chapter 1 in the next couple of verses uh, that we haven't read, and it tells us that Jesus spoke differently from all of the other teachers. He spoke as one who had authority. When Jesus came onto the scene, he didn't come up and stand before a group and and, uh, try to take on some faux humility and say, I would like to just share some thoughts with you tonight. No, Jesus wasn't there to share. He was to broadcast. He was to proclaim the good news of Christ. And so I want you to see, first of all, from our verses tonight, what the kingdom is that is preached and how it is at hand. Jesus came proclaiming, verse 15 says, that the time has come and the kingdom of God is near or it is at hand. Jesus came broadcasting, announcing, heralding, proclaiming. When He preached, He opened up the Word and mind of God and gave it to the people to understand. And He preached, of course, the good news. Now, if you contrast the good news with what you find all around you, either in the checkout line at the grocery store or online on your screens, do your own survey sometime and note the percentage of stories that are bad news or shocking compared to those that bring good news and are thrilling. Bad news sells. We read about riots in Atlanta or Memphis. We read about the arrest of celebrities and want to probe and behind and hear about their private lives which are crumbling. We read about market crashes, war and violence. And the bad news is what sells. Now, of course, John the baptizer brought some bad news. He said, you need to repent. 
but he brought, also brought the good news and our Lord Jesus' embodiment of the gospel as he is the solution to our bad news. And the good news of God, as you study any time in, in one of these gospels, the good news is not about us. It's not even our salvation. But the good news is first and foremost about God. Too often churches talk about the good news and try to conform it to be something that is therapeutic. Or else they try to take the good news and say, this will lead you to prosperity and affluence. Or we even take the good news and say, if you understand the good news, you can have better relationships. Or this is how you can live your best life now. In contrast, the good news, never forget, is not about you, it's about God. Remember the first great lesson in theology. There is a God and He is not you. As simple as there is a God and He is not you. As Mark unfolds this gospel, Jesus tells the people as part of the good news that the time has come, the time has been fulfilled. Centuries had been transpiring. The people are waiting and waiting and waiting. The kingdom though has arrived. And that is the heart and soul and the first part of Jesus' message. If you want to know what preaching does out of the lips of our Lord, the first trumpet sound of His preaching is the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. So what is this kingdom of God? If you go back into the Old Testament, you, you won't find that term used all that many times. It's used only three or four times in the Psalter, although Jesus is described as the sovereign and a, a, a God, I'm sorry, is described as the sovereign, as the king, as the Lord often. But it's the book of Daniel later in the Old Testament, that begins to bring this term into our hearing. It's a kingdom, according to Daniel chapter 2, which will never be destroyed. It's a kingdom in Daniel chapter 7 that is filled with glory and dominion given to the Son of Man. And the kingdom, you must understand, when Jesus says the kingdom was at hand, He is not talking about a territorial nation-state. Our Lord is not saying and the Bible does not teach that the kingdom is limited or concentrated in one geographical place. There is no post office box. There is no building that you can send your mail to for the kingdom of God, but it's an invisible one. It is a spiritual one. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ spread over all the world, spread where our friends will be going to Malaysia, where they will call out those who are the elect in God's name. It's those next door and, and down the street from you in another part of Douglas County. The kingdom of God is all over. Where His church is, where His people are, is not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the church is the community of those souls who carry out the obedience to our King Jesus. So a, a common and often asked question is if Jesus preached the kingdom of God, does it still need to be proclaimed today? And the answer is a resounding yes. Philip, a few chapters after the scripture reading tonight in Acts 6, Philip in Acts chapter 8 speaks of the kingdom of God and preaches those things. In Acts chapter 14, Paul speaks of the many challenges that face the missionaries 
the challenges as they entered the kingdom. In Acts chapter 19, the apostles reasoned and persuaded people concerning the kingdom. And the kingdom had gone out into all the world. As Paul tells the Ephesian elders goodbye, the kingdom had gone into the world. And in his epistles later, Paul will define the kingdom as something that is right here in the midst. It is internal. It is close to you. It's not way off. It's not unattainable. We're also told that those who live immorally will not inherit the kingdom of God and that we are in Christ's kingdom now. And at the very end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that since you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, worship God with reverence and awe. So yes, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is that rule and reign of Jesus that transcends any geographical, national, political, or ethnic differences. Secondly in this, I want you to ask the question, how do we respond to hearing about the kingdom? And the answer is simple. There are two things that are, that are uh, told to us here by the Lord Jesus. There are two parts of living and responding to the kingdom. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, there are common misconceptions around each of those, so we would do well to take just, just a few minutes to uh, make sure we understand what those terms mean. Uh, to repent is not the same thing as being sorry for being caught. Repentance is not uh, just regret or some kind of vague sorrow. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle. That's what repentance is. It's not internal only. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sins or that someone got angry or hurt or upset. No, repentance is turning over a new leaf. It is a change of life and mind. It is a change to the core. When we repent and come into Jesus' kingdom, we leave behind some things that we've spent a lot of our lives investing in and realize there are kingdom priorities that have not been the ones we've spent our time on. It is a turning away from sin and a turning toward God. There's an old little children's hymn that puts it this way. Some of you may have heard this or sung this. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing sin no more. Jesus says if you would be a part of His kingdom, none of us are acceptable by birth. None of us are naturally citizens of this kingdom. We must be changed. We must repent and that is a thing that is taught in the Scriptures that still should be broadcast today. All too often our churches forget about that. We do not love people when we hide from them. The part of good news, the part of the Gospel that says you need to change, you need to repent. Repentance is that change of heart and mind to the core. That's the first thing that Jesus says you should do and respond as a part of a citizen of the kingdom. And the second thing he says is that you must believe. You must trust. Faith is the 
Persuasion of the mind. This too is, is, is confused. <clears throat> we, we use the word I believe or I have faith in, in, in you a, a whole lot of times in different ways and we, we forget what the New Testament says when it defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now I don't know if your pastor does this very often with you, but since I'm a guest tonight I can do this. I need to confess my sin uh, to you. I sinned on my way out here. Uh, with my wife in the car. I did not act in faith. It was nearly late because I committed a horrible sin of thinking I knew how to drive here better than the GPS. Global positioning systems are great examples of faith. Now you can argue with that little voice. Sometimes it's a little British lady. Sometimes you can program it to be different. You can, you can argue with that and think you know where you're going or you can follow the GPS directions which an intelligent person would do, a person of faith would do. But sure enough, I thought I knew better. GPS uh, things remind us of what faith is like. You don't know what's ahead. If you follow your GPS, particularly if you're in a different place, if you're someplace unfamiliar, you don't know where you're going and you follow those things, you are trusting that the programmers know the roads and the highways and the turns and that they know what they're doing. You are trusting that. And if you follow your GPS, you, you get there. Now, every once they're wrong. Every once in a while they're wrong. GPSs are not inerrant and infallible like the Word of God. But if you have faith, you follow that. And Jesus said, I want you, first of all, as a member of the kingdom, I want you to repent and your life needs to change. You need to leave some things behind. Secondly, you must live a life of trust. You must have faith. You must follow me better than Pastor Hall follows the GPS. Follow what the Lord has told us to do. That is the real discipleship that we'll see in the next couple of verses. But be clear about this. To believe is not the same as to attend sermons for a while and to be entertained uh, at a wonderful church building by a really stunning communicator. That's not faith. Faith is not the same as partial retention where you hear part of the word and you retain a bit and then you get home and you go, you know, I think I'm going to follow points three and four and seven, but not all. That's not faith. Faith is not when you join a different church to be upwardly mobile or to get new friends. Faith is not when you already agree with your friends and you follow them and you happen to agree. Anyway, faith means we change our values, our lifestyle in repentance and we follow the King. So how are lives changed? Look with me at verses 17 through 20 and you'll find that when the King calls us, <clears throat> That his kingdom is at hand. First of all, Jesus tells us there is a kingdom at hand. It's near. Secondly, he tells us how to be in that kingdom to repent and to believe. And then thirdly, we see how lives are changed when the king calls. Our lives are rightly interrupted. If Christ has not or cannot interrupt your life, maybe you haven't met the real Jesus. It's like the cell phone of your soul goes off in the middle of everybody. He interrupts your life. And He calls you. That is the act of kingship. When Christ calls you, He then redirects your life. That's what He did with Andrew and Simon and with 
James and John. He redirected their life. Their, their discipleship is, is following His royal kingship because Jesus conscripts. He doesn't ask for volunteers. That too is an act of royal kingship. The two fishermen here, the first brothers mentioned are Simon and Andrew. Gospel of John has Andrew first. But Jesus the king comes to them and he calls them and he says, follow me. As he calls you to follow him. There is then an upgrade that he gives to follow them and they will become fishers of men. And you'll notice that in their response, they immediately left and followed him. And then he goes and there are two other fishermen whose lives the Lord Jesus our King disrupts and redirects and puts into a new purpose. He calls the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who leave their fishing business. They, they run out from under the fishing business. They leave their father, Zebedee, with the boats. And they have the same reaction. When Jesus calls, the response is immediate. It is prompt because when we deal with Jesus, we're not hearing any other religious Leader call us. We're not hearing a great philosopher. You are hearing the only living Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He makes Himself known to you in such a compelling and powerful way that you leave and quickly go and follow Him. And Jesus called them to become fishers of men. There's a, a wonderful little <clears throat> Puritan work, one of the great Scottish theologians of several centuries ago is Thomas Boston who has a 12 volume series I'm sure your pastor uh, has these and, and others of you may have the small slim volume that's taken out of that called The Art of Man Fishing and Thomas Boston takes this passage and develops it in, in great detail reminding us that Jesus and God's word calls us to different roles God's word in the New Testament calls some to be shepherds and they're to watch and protect the flock he calls some to be soldiers he calls some uh, to run the race or, or to be farmers. But here, Jesus' first call is, I want you to be fishers of men, of people. And Boston goes on to unfold this, the work to which Christians are called is to go and cast their nets and to cast their nets broadly. God calls us to fish and the, the job of a fisherman is not an easy one. It's made up of long nights. Sometimes when the fishermen come back empty, as we see in a couple of gospel passages. That's what led to Peter's conversion. The work of the fishermen is wet and cold and dirty. And yet he goes and casts his nets where the fish are. All of those who would be fishers of men need to know that we cast our nets here from these pulpits. And we also cast our nets in our conversation. You will not find a good fisherman park his boat in your parking lot anytime soon, and start casting his nets onto the asphalt. The fisherman goes to where the fish are. <clears throat> and so God calls us as a part of His royal kingship through Christ to go and cast our nets. Cast our nets broadly and to spread them out and to haul in all that the Lord will bring. And there is even another passage in John chapter 6 when the, the nets are, 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 are portrayed as being dragged and the fish don't come in and volunteer to hop into the boat, do they? No, the net is cast and they are dragged 
and they're brought into the boat. And some fish may even wriggle free. Some may get away. Some may come to your church for a while and demonstrate that they're not truly members of Christ's kingdom by desertion or by going out. But Jesus called these men, and I believe He's calling you and me and all of us at all times to be fishers of men. Don't you need a renewal of man fishing here at this wonderful church? Won't you, due to your gratitude for Christ's saving work in your own life, go fishing? To make it your priority, there's nothing I could wish for you more and when you go to have your 20th year celebration, every one of you brings at least one other person. Go fishing for men. Isn't that a need of our church, one of the greatest needs? And don't give up. The king will bring the catch. These men were called to make some very expensive choices. They were called on to leave their friends their family, their fortune. The only life that they had ever known. And they were expected to trade the certain for the uncertain. The visible for the invisible. The life of faith in the kingdom calls on us to give up the known for the unknown. They gave up their ability to start all over with inability. And they pursued the impossible, giving up the possible. These men knew fishing inside out, but they were helpless. When it came to this new chapter in their life, when Jesus was calling them, He called them to come into the kingdom and to repent and believe, and it would cost them everything. In fact, every one of these men who followed Jesus, except for one, would die for this man. It was calling them to follow Him. That was a very pricey call, was it not? A very expensive summons from the king. But the Scripture says they forsook their nets. They left them behind. And they realized, as I hope everyone here tonight will realize, that Jesus was the king and His kingdom is at hand. Do you realize that? Are you living tonight as we conclude this Lord's Day under new management of a new king? Or have you been telling yourself maybe a few years or decades that you're really in control of your life? Do you understand that Jesus calls you away from that illusion he calls you away from that lie and self-deception when you think that you are supposed to be in charge and He says, no, come to Me and bend the knee to King Jesus and come and live under new management. Enter the kingdom of God by trusting in the Lord Jesus who came in God's perfect timing fulfilling all His promises that you and I might have Peace at last, for the King has come. And it is time to live 
under the true Lord and new manager of your life. Tonight, you can have a new master and a new mission. Is this kingdom what guides and governs you? Or are you seeking first your own kingdom and your own fiefdom and your own throne? Let's pray together. Would you, O oh Lord, take these wonderful words of life, <clears throat> the eternal words of Christ our King, and let us know, our Father, we pray, that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom does not await. And you call us, Lord, with a sovereign summons to repent and believe. I pray, O oh Lord, for the one who has been clinging to sinful habits in the past and other values that are not part of your kingdom that you would break us and lead us to humbly repent and that we would believe and that we would follow and rejoice in being a small, loyal subject to the great high King of heaven who is also stooped and condescended to come and dwell in our midst, full of grace and truth. May our hearts tonight, O Lord, be yoked to no one but Him. For we ask this in His name and by His grace. Amen.